Welcome to The Best Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Bradley H. Werrell, and we're here to explore options and potentials to help us grow as individuals and as a community with one another in these difficult times and challenging times. We're exploring all manner of potentials related to the human experience, physical, psychological, medical, spiritual. It's a wonderful opportunity that we now experience in this critical phase of our human evolution. And I welcome you to join us in our podcast, become more aware and identify with people who are helpful and supportive of you in your efforts as a human being on this planet and elsewhere too. We're going to be meeting people who are doing things that are widely variant from what is so-called normal within our society. In the creative space, within the social space, our common purpose, seeking to generate positive potentials to improve the lives of everyone in our sphere of influence and to expand that sphere of influence so that we may positively influence others that are not yet engaged directly with us. That's the goal here. We will learn more about each other as we go. I wish you the very best. Thank you very much for tuning in. All right, so we have Rachel Toomes. Rachel, R-H-A-C-H-E-L, her creative parents. I ran into a, a fair amount of that in my work as a family practice guy. I like creative people. I'm like, what are your parents thinking, man? You spelling a name in such a fashion that causes everybody to go, what are you, what does that mean? How do you say that, right? It's like, imagine you run into that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, what I, what I tell uh, people is that my, uh, my parents were sociopaths. There was actually a, there's actually, because everyone, um, I have two younger brothers and they're both RH as well. Um, and so there, I think there was a study that came out a few years ago that uh, people who name their children with, with the same letter actually have sociopathic tendencies. So I typically just say, oh yeah, they're sociopaths and I get a laugh and we move on. So there you go. That's an interesting thing because you like confuse the names of your children when you're upset. Oh, Especially sure. if they all start with the same letters, I'm sure they were calling everybody's name out when they were upset with one of you. Oh, of course. Yeah, I think, um, so I used to be a teacher and I used to work with parents as a parenting consultant as well. And so I think a lot of parents have that problem, but it makes it way more difficult when you all begin with the same letter. And, and my parent, my mother's name was Rhonda. And my father's name was Ralph. So, and then they would name all our family pets with the first letter R as well. It was, oh I know, I know, it's <laughs> kind of crazy. I, you know, I will admit that. <laughs> there you go. So um, I hope you'll be so kind as to tell the audience a little bit about your background. Yeah, so um, I thought I was gonna be an orchestral conductor. I went to school uh, for music and I got in with violin. I've been playing violin since I was five. Um, and I went to Rollins College, which is a small liberal art college uh, here in Florida, it's in Winter Park, Florida. And I got some scholarships for violin. Um, that's how I got in. And I, I went there because I could study orchestral conducting as an undergrad. Typically, you don't get that kind of treatment as an undergrad, you don't get to do that. Um, and about my second year in, I thought, you know, 
you're you guys are kind of crazy <laughs> in the music department like you guys are kind of nuts and there's really I didn't see a future in it for me just because I I knew that my ability to become a conductor would be very limited there's not a lot of uh, demand for orchestral conductors and it's typically very competitive so um rather than like switch schools or switch majors and lose my scholarship I thought you know I'll just I'll just go ahead and get my degree in music and then I'll see I'll try different jobs see what I like maybe go back to grad school and get you know in a topic that I really care about um and not that I don't care about music it was just one of those things that I did um so then I got out and I became a teacher at a small local Christian school I taught music and math um, I didn't really get along with the principal very well. So in less than a year, I ended up leaving there. Um, and I actually went and taught English in China. I had uh, some friends who had taught English in China and uh, they would go on and on about how, what a life-changing experience it was. So I said, okay, I'll, I guess I'll just go with this group of strangers to China and I'll, I'll teach English and I'll just live in China for a year. Um, and that was, that was really interesting life changing experience for me, it really was. Um, just because I really hadn't thought much about politics up to that point. I mean, I grew up um, in a very partisan kind of family where, you know, you vote a certain way, you believe a certain thing, you don't really question it. Um, and so I just never questioned it. And I never really understood it. Um, I didn't, I really wasn't into economics. I really just, you know, I didn't understand healthcare. I didn't really understand anything. It just wasn't an interest of, of mine and I was never taught it. Um, so when I went to China, I mean, I knew they were a communist country, but I didn't really understand communism either. And so I went there and it was just eye-opening. And I began to question everything, really dive into economics and political science and try to find my own identity politically. And I really started questioning the political parties, um, which was kind of uncomfortable having grown up in a, a staunch partisan family um, and really taught to not question them and not really look under the hood. And um, from there, I, I kind of formed my own political values and my own values at large. And I actually had wanted to stay in China to teach English, but um, I, I came back home to be with my family. And I've, I've been in the US ever since. I took some teaching jobs and uh, I became a full-time nanny and a parenting consultant as well. And um, when I came back to the US, I knew that I wanted to fight for freedom and fight for liberty. I was really, really terrified that what was happening in China would happen here. Um, and this was right before the Affordable Care Act uh, came into play. I so came what back year are we right Where, what that. year is that? This was in 2010. That was the year that the Affordable Care Act, or like that was around the time, like right before, right? I don't recall. I, I just feel like this is like, um, you know, I was politically active uh, in 2007, 2008. Oh, okay. So that's about right, though. It's like somewhere somewhere in that time range. It was after that election. Yeah, it was in Obama's second year. I came back after his first year and a half, um, June 2010. Um, so, yeah, it was right before that. Um, and I started going to political party meetings thinking, okay, this is where I can find my home, you know, other people that really care about politics and hopefully they care about facts. And I wanted to mm -hmm. learn more too and see how I could get involved and see how I could fight for, for freedom. And what I found in the political parties was a lot of hypocrisy. Um, you know, they always say principle over politics. That wasn't true at all. Um, and I ended up joining the Libertarian Party. And in 2016, I really got involved with the Libertarian Party. Um, and I realized that they, you know, 
there's still a party. You know, you say principle over politics, it still just wasn't there because in politics, especially with the political party, the whole point is get an office, stay in office. And you do that at almost any cost. Um, you know, that's, that's just power. And so um, I didn't really like that. So I thought, well, I'm going to try to stick to the issues <laughs> and I, I want to find an organization and I want to go into politics full time in some capacity, but fight for principle, fight for issues, not fight based on party lines. So I, I went to uh, Americans for Prosperity and I did organizational uh, work and advocacy work in the field for them for about a year and a half. Then their um, educational wing, their training wing picked me up and I started traveling all over the US. Um, teaching activists, training them on different issues, training them how to be better organizers and how to fight for what they believe in. And now I'm at uh, America's Future. I'm as the director of grassroots and community growth. How long have you been doing that? Uh, since January 2nd of this year. So it's, it's, similar um, program, you're, you're helping people become uh, more effective organizers and field workers. So it's actually kind of different. Um, I like to, I like to call America's Future the culture and lifestyle branch of the Liberty Movement. Um, we really focus on educating and empowering millennials and Gen Zers who are mostly aligned with us to get active in some way, um, whether that's writing an op-ed or going to city hall or. Um, joining a C4 nonprofit organization where they actually can do direct political advocacy or grassroots advocacy, um, you know, starting a book club, just living a lifestyle based on liberty so that they're a good testimony um, for our values and our principles. Yeah, it seems to me it's an interesting function that, that, that it is what we are, the, this kind of nexus we've arrived at is that. Um, we're forced to choose between participation in systems that are um, necessarily disempowering to the individual for, uh, you know, you could say systemic oppression of the, everybody to uh, generate some value for some few people at the other end of the, the, the narrowing funnel that sucks up all the wealth, or its power and centralization of authority and power and um, the finance is not the big part of it. People like the, the, there are very many people in this country, they, they think that it's all about money and the, the wealthy people want money. No, money doesn't matter. They just want power. It's like, right, control. Right. and it's like, okay, so it's like to me, the, the, the key function is our attention and our intention and our participation in systems that don't work for us, but work on us. And so it's like, so to me, it's like a um, grassroots movement is to uh, figure out how to uh, organize outside of the control of these institutions is kind of how I see it. Yeah, I um, the way I really describe it is grassroots activism and advocacy, the aim is to hold those institutions accountable. And I think that's where we're really seeing a huge failing in the US is people say, okay, it's Team red against team blue. And if you're on team red or you're on team blue, then you're automatically against anything and everything the other team stands for. It doesn't really matter if your team's right or wrong or sometimes right, sometimes wrong. It's we have to win at all costs, even if we're dishonest about it. And so the the I mean, I really see it as a partisanship problem. And then the you know, the institutions um, kind of are divvied up. 
like that. Um, I also I also see a huge cultural problem, and I think um, the Marxist movement has done a really great job of shifting culture. I think we've seen that this year more than any other year is that they've been working so long on changing hearts and minds that they were really able to leverage different opportunities of events that happened this year to really shift people's view on things like racism um, and a variety, a variety of other things, including the proper role of government. And so I, I think that's a huge problem too. Us in the liberty movement, we're really good at winning political battles and getting candidates elected to office. And that's pretty much what most organizations in the liberty movement focus on. Um, but there's really a gap. And the gap is we're not actually changing hearts and minds. We're not fighting the, the cultural war. Um, and as we know, I mean, uh, policy is downstream from culture. A great example of that is the temperance movement. Um, you know, you had the 18th Amendment, you know, banning alcohol, right? But it only stuck around for a few years. And the reason why is because the culture didn't shift. They were able to make that huge policy win. But without the culture, it, it's not it's not going to stay. So we can win all the policy that we want, but if we're not changing hearts and minds, if we're not shifting culture, then it's just not going to stick. Right. No, the interesting thing about that is it's like the, um, that goes to um, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist who wrote about um, cultural hegemony. And he died in 1937, and he pretty much stated what has happened, which is the. Uh, he, he called the battle plan, which is to, the cultural hegemony is the, is the uh, I would define it as the cultural preferences of the elite are projected through the social institutions into the general public. Mm. And so he, he posited this battle plan, which is first we have a war of position, which is we put our guys into the social institutions so they can be the elite that are then gonna influence everybody else. And it's like they, and then, that is necessary to create the con social conditions necessary for the revolution because the Marxist revolutionary. And then we will have the kinetic fight, which is actual combat with the forces of reaction against the revolution. Mm -hmm. So it's like they tried it in 1969, 1970 with the uh, weather underground. Those guys thought they were going to spark the revolution in America. Mm -hmm. It's like it wasn't time. And it's like, that's what this looks like. And the interesting thing about it is it's like the, um, the institutions are all, are all have the, all been infiltrated and have all been uh, are all pushing in the same direction. So it's like, yeah. So the cultural preferences of the elite is the uh, revolutionary. Those guys are the are the um, those are the elite, and it is like what has happened is interesting is that they created they have created the conditions of necessary for revolution, but that's where we get the reaction of the uh, 2016 election, mm -hmm. which is oh, the. Oh. You're pushing us in a direction we don't want to be pushed, and it's like, wow, it's like the um, the uh, the spring back is populism, um, you know, nationalism, and so yeah. yeah, so that's what I see has happened in the the what's that mean? It's like it is. It's the the issue is this is that the the control of the educational process was a, it's a long-standing plan for all the people who are trying to control the populace to control the minds of the youth because it's like. There was a there was a story that was fascinating to me that was um, the teachers are doing this tele telecommunication system over the over conferences like we're having this little chat yeah. with, the, with the students and they're like 
they're told the parents they didn't want the parents eavesdropping in on what they're teaching the kids. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, wow, that's crazy, Bill. But it's like, yeah. doesn't surprise me, really. After mm -hmm. having uh, witnessed some of the things that are being, uh, you know, espoused in these institutions. Yeah, I mean, I was really fortunate. I was homeschooled from kindergarten to eighth grade. And then um, in ninth and 10th grade, I went to a one-room schoolhouse. And um, then 11th grade, I went to a public school, but it was a public art school because I played violin. Um, and I mean, you had to interview to get in. So, I mean, there was, it was a higher level kind of student and the teachers were amazing, but, and I don't like, they didn't really have a political agenda. However, the education was just so poor that it's like, you know, these kids couldn't think for themselves to save their life. You know, like they just couldn't think for themselves. They couldn't even follow basic instructions to write an essay. At that point, I had never really written too many essays being homeschooled. Like it was mostly just reading and a few tests and stuff. I really didn't write essays. I don't know. That was just the style of my parents. Um, so like I didn't, I wasn't like a huge essay writer when I went to public school in 11th grade. But I remember um, I was one of only three students who actually got 100 on our first essay of the year. And it wasn't because my essay was like incredibly good or anything. It was just, I followed the instructions. Like you have to have this many paragraphs. You have to have this many words. It has to address these three things. Okay, fine. Like it was, you know, not a whole lot of room for creativity, but I don't care. I just want the grade, right? But the, the students couldn't even do that. Um, and I, I remember, I think the most political thing was it wasn't even overtly political for the sake of, you know, politics. But I remember sitting in environmental science wonderful teacher, but she kept going on and on and on about how um, like the environment can't take this many people and, you know, something's got to give. And it's like, well, what are you actually saying here, ma'am? <laughs> you know, and I don't think people really caught on to that. I mean, it was months and months of this kind of, of talk and about, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was not a great experience. Um, and I mean, I think that that was actually one of the better schools in my county. And I mean, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just not good. I mean, even if they're not teaching overt political positions or Marxism, which we know that's not true. We know that's happening in a lot of schools. Um, I mean, even still, they're not teaching kids how to think, you know? So when they go out into the real world, they're just gonna go along with what the political parties and the politicians and the propaganda and the media, whatever they say, or whoever's the most popular in Hollywood, what they say. Um, and I mean, I, I agree with you. They've infiltrated education system. They've infiltrated the media. They've infiltrated Hollywood. I mean, I think it was um, Clark Gable and Ronald Reagan. There was actually like a conservative Republican club or something like, and I mean, now, I mean, look at Hollywood. I mean, if you're, I think recently, like they were flaming uh, Chris Pratt on, on Twitter for being conservative. Um, I just, and calling him a Trumper and stuff. I don't even actually know if he is a Trumper or not. But um, it's just, it's, it's really sad. It's not, it's not a good situation. Well, it's interesting because I, I was kind of a black sheepy kind of school person. And um, the, the, and I, and I studied, um, I got real mad. I graduated from college in 85. And then um, I, I was bouncing around trying to figure out what to do for about 10 years. Then I went to medical school. And then um, when I was done with me uh, medical school, I, I, um, after my internship, I worked for a couple of years as a general practice guy before I did my residency. And um, 
my stepdaughter brought home a book that was about the monetary system, which I read, and I'm like, she didn't couldn't tolerate it, but I read it, and I'm like, made me so irritatedly mad because I understood what a dollar was after having gone to a famous liberal arts college and paid lot top dollars and did what they said and was a good boy and 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 graduated with what I thought would minimally qualify me to enter into civil society. But then I'm like this. I'm like, I'm going to sue these people because, yeah. because it goes like this. It took me 16 years uh, and only accidentally did I figure out what a dollar was. And I'm like, so it's like this. I pay you the big bucks. I do what you say. I da, 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 and then I graduate and I did the discipline. But it's like this. You didn't make me minimally qualified to enter into civil society because I don't understand what a dollar is for 16 years. And a dollar is in every contract that I could sign, which means I don't understand the basic terms of the contract. I'm not qualified to even sign the thing. And I'm like, yeah. out of the park. And oh, that, yeah. that began my educational process, which is like, um, I better figure out what's going on here. This is, that was in 2002, I started that process. Oh, wow. And I just recently, um, so I studied finance, you know, what's going on, how does, a, how does this money thing work and all the, all the financial things. And um, I studied most recently, I, I, my, uh, we, we bought a private practice here, um, my uh, buddy from residency, we moved our families out here to Arizona and um, purchased private practice and tried to make that work, two doctors to make a private practice work. And it's like, can't be done systemically. The system says that is not what we want. So they squeeze us out. Yeah, we figured yeah. it out when they were, we couldn't make any money. And then we um, end up selling it to the hospital. Hospital gets paid three and a half times what they're willing to pay us. So there's no market. That was yeah. the illusion that we believed that we believed there was a free market in medicine. It's like, no, 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 it's a command economy. I'm like, wow, yeah. wow, that just blow. You can't even imagine it because they're willing to pay three and a half times to somebody who's not you. Yeah. And I'm like, unbelievable. So it's like, but that's a, that's the educational process I did. So I spent the last four years just trying to figure out what happened to America. And so, you know, <laughs> oh. No. oh, it's a terrible story. It's a terrible oh, story. That's no, no. uncomfortable. My, uh, my um, father is a um, retired um, history professor, recent American history. And we oh. cannot talk, not about that. Oh no. Really? Oh no. Why not? Well, I, so I asked my dad this question, this is funny. I said, uh, Dad, it looks, it occurs to me that if you believe what I'm saying, it has to do with the conspiracy theory. It does not matter how much evidence I bring to bear. Is that correct? He says, stunningly, yes. And I'm like, whoa, I can't believe you agreed to that, man. Right? But it's okay. It's okay. Because I don't, I don't need him to agree with me. He's 82, right? Yeah. That's okay. Wow. I think in my mind, I just automatically assume that former history teachers that are that old aren't, I mean, and I don't know what your, you know, if your father is buying into a certain like revisionist kind of American history or understanding or anything. No. He's um, a great shooter, man. He's like, he's like, he's like this. It's all about, um, see what happened was about 1920 mm -hmm. and prior to that, 1910, the Carnegie Foundation was talking about how do they, what do they need to do to change the American people, right? Mm -hmm. There's there's evidence of this in a Reese committee, uh, which was a congressional committee on, um, is when they were doing the un-American activities things. 
and it was the Reese Committee was studying the uh, influence of the tax exempt foundations. And they're like this, the tax exempt foundations reforged American history and changed the rules by which history was taught and understood. And they changed it in a manner so that guys like my dad will not recognize evidence that is not within the standards of what they called evidence. Mm. So it's like, to, it's to codify the uh, production of history so that we can control history for the purpose of controlling the public narrative. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, 100%. It reminds me of what they've done to uh, the science industry in this country as, as well. I don't know if you ever, and I, I'm no expert in science or history. I just wanna say that like my expertise lays in music and organizing. And that's that's pretty much where my, and then maybe some cooking. I'm, I'm a pretty good cook. I know a lot about that. But <laughs> um, I, I watched this documentary called Expelled. Ben Stein did it. He did it, um, oh, it's been, it's over 10 years old now. I remember it came out when I was actually taking uh, human evolution in um, college. That was like in 06 or something. And uh, it came out and you can barely, you can barely even find it anymore. It's like, you can't find it anywhere because the, the stuff in it is just so shocking, you know, like mainstream would never, they don't want it out there. Um, but basically it shows like how there's a huge bias in the science community, how, you know, it's not, you know, as a scientist, you're not allowed to just do experiments, make hypotheses, and then whatever happens, happens. Like it's, it's really, really super biased. And if your findings don't fit in with a certain narrative that the scientific community has deemed appropriate, then you're pretty much blackballed. Same as history is the same. So it's like, if you, if you, yeah. if you espouse views that are unpopular and it's like politically unacceptable. So it's like a form of self-censorship takes hold. Interesting. But the, the interesting finding was, um, you know, in my further research on these, um, tax exempt foundations, what they did was they like, they control the grant writing process and the grant granting process. And therefore they can control the direction of um, research. Interesting. And so, so my conclusion became this, which is like, so what looks like a meritocracy is not, which is cool as a meritocracy. I'm like, no, it's a social promotion scheme, which yeah. is if we like you, we pat you on the back and you're at a boy, you're great. And then we'll give you a scholarship and promote you. And guys like me, I'm a hard-headed guy that I'm not agreeable enough, man. I just will not go along and get along. And I'm like, you know, and I'll get knocked in the head and, until I'm discouraged sufficiently because I'm like, you guys are corrupt, rotten, and I'll go figure out something better to do, which is like, okay, that's what I'm good at. And it's like, that's how come we end up talking because it's right, like right. this. I call this bitter pill I have to eat. So as a, as a physician, so I'm working for the hospital and I'm using an um, electronic health record, which is not working for me or the patient, but working on both of us. As I report information on both of us to people that neither one of us knows nor care what they do, except they're gonna use it against both of us in some fashion, okay? Mm -hmm. And I call this, this is a bitter pill I eat every day. This side is, is extremely irritating. And this side is sublimely motivating. And it's mm -hmm. like this, cause it's like, what are you gonna do about it, big boy? That's the only question, right? Yeah. And so that, that's how I end up doing what I work. So the, this podcast is part and parcel of my interest in generating a two-step process. First of all, I'm, I'm working as the, as the seed is to create a um, online telemedicine service 
for cash only. So we've cut away all the middlemen and then we do what, what's essential to help the patient and then we drastically diminish the costs. So that's, and I want to make a nationwide system. There's something like 27 million uninsured Americans at this time. And I'm like, well, those guys have to pay just outrageous sums to go see the physician to uh, get a piece of paper. I'm like, well, that's just ridiculous. We can really do a lot better. And oh, that, that service is supposed to act as the uh, kind of like the, the nucleating point for a greater public good that I'm trying to generate, which I call uh, res publica, which is this public thing which is designed to um, create positively generative systems to um, enhance the well-being of the people in general, as well as not just the participants, but to generate a field that it goes outside, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so there, that, go I'm ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, please go ahead and finish your thought. No, that's all, I'm pretty good. Oh, okay. Um, I forget his name, but um, America's Future in Nashville, the chapter that we have in Nashville, um, the chapter leader there has a friend who is trying to do, I don't, I don't think it's, he, I don't think he's trying to do it nationwide, but he is trying to do it at least in Nashville. He's trying to do something very similar. Um, I am not sure if he's a physician or I think he is a physician, but he's trying to do something very, very similar, especially now with COVID. Um, and it's, I think this is going to sound wrong. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I think, well, I'm not going to say it, but I'll say it a different way. Um, I think COVID has given us a great opportunity to really roll back a lot of restrictions. Um, like, um, oh, I understand what, I understand what you're saying. So it's like this, what it, this fits into a wider schema that I was to um, discuss with you because you, you may find it interesting. Yeah. Is, it occurs to me that what has happened is that everybody is becoming aware of the fact that much was promised by all the social institutions of which not all will be delivered and everyone is going to take a short and so it's like this the music is ending we're playing musical chairs and i need a place to park and it's like everybody knows they're getting shorted so it's like there's not enough chairs here and so what has happened is the public is withdrawing their consent from participation because it's like we we recognize it as corruption or something like that and you lied to us and you're lying to me now and you're going to lie to me in the future and you just are trying to do something else other than what you say you're trying to do which is to help the people or whatever they say yeah, yeah. and um the, the entire superstructure of the establishment is based upon the consent of the people and when we withdraw our consent the the, the pieces start falling down and mm -hmm. so the, the general situation, as far as I can tell, is that the, the, the liabilities and assets are forming together and coalescing into a C, which is to fall into the hands of a receiver as the entire structure is reorganized and a new establishment is, is elaborated. The most important function in that is that the, the who is the receiver controls the direction that the next thing grows. Mm -hmm. And that's the most important function for the uh, would-be elite. And so in a, in a normal bankruptcy, like say you and me have a corporation that goes bankrupt, the court, the court decides who gets the seed, the receiver of the seed that is to control the liabilities and assets of the defunct corporation. But this is civilizational and in fact global in its context. And it's like, so the manifestations of what we're seeing, I think that, and it's like, this is pretty edgy stuff. So I apologize for being too- No, no you're good. I, no, please. It's like, 
the three things that I witnessed that, and not all of them are this year, but all of them are coming, all of them are coming to bear this year, which is the climate change, Black Lives Matter, and um, the COVID-19 are all coming from social institutions, which is authoritarian mindset. Who's paying for these things to be elaborated as a uh, narrative in the public space? And the purpose is to control who is the receiver. And the receiver in a global, in this civilizational sense is politically defined, right? Oh, great. There you have it. So it's like this. So all the rules are, are changing. It's like I've witnessed it. I've been doing that. I was doing the telemedicine as a way to pay for my defunct business for four years while I studied what happened to America. Okay. So it's like this. And the rules are like, the rules have been changed a lot, especially with the COVID-19 is like an accelerant on that process. And so it's like, but I say all the rules of all the institutions are in flux and are gonna, they're settling down into, a, into the seed. They're trying to settle down to coalesce into a different formation. And that's what we're trying to, you know, it's like we're trying to figure out what's going on in this great big foggy night, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think, I, I think COVID has given us a lot of opportunity to, especially with like telemedicine. And I forget the other thing, it, it's basically, where as a medical provider, you have to get permission from other medical providers in the area in order to practice. I forget what it's called. Um, we actually just got rid of it in Florida about a year ago, thank God. Um, but I think it's been a great opportunity to really innovate in that space and make it easier for people like you to do business. I do wonder what is going to happen with the election um, if certain people get into power one way or the other. Um, I really, excuse me, I wonder how it's going to shake out if it'll, if there will end up being more barriers or less barriers. I would think in a year with COVID where people are like, yeah, of course we should have telemedicine. Why didn't we have this 10 years ago or five years ago, whatever. Um, I would think that it would become more appealing and the government would be like, yeah, we need this because we don't want people physically being, you know, interacting, um, as well as some other really good healthcare um, reform, political reform or policy reform rather. Um, but I really do, I really am concerned with, with the direction, the political direction, the cultural direction that our country is going in that we might end up with more barriers, but I, I have no idea. I'm purely speculating. And so it comes down to what the people will tolerate. And, and it comes to the, the issue is that, um, how, how much they're willing to pay. Right, because it's like, yeah, this cost will eventually the cost will become significant. Because it's like, well, go ahead. Have you heard of the um, Cloward, uh, Cloward Pivot? Yes, I was, I was trying to think of Piven's name today. I was like, Cloward, I'm like, I can't remember Piven's name. They're married, right? Yeah, they were married uh, sociologists. Um, oh, wait, I thought you said sociopaths before. Well, I, I think there's a I think I think they are sociopaths just between you and me. I think they are because they're like, we'll make a system that's so burdensome, it'll just collapse. And then we'll be able to leverage that collapse to be like, see, we need universal health care. Um, and I could see that happening. I mean, I think I think a lot of people culturally are ready for universal health care or they're at least OK with it without even knowing what it is. Um, and I think that that is also given Marxists in this com in this country an opportunity to be like, look, with COVID, universal health care. I was just um, 
I'm so I'm a part of this Marxist Facebook group where people you know talk about things. It's all based here in my city, Jacksonville. There's all these different like Marxist organizers and they talk about things. And some of the issues I, I agree with them all about like, criminal justice reform. Most of the issues I don't because I'm not a Marxist, right? Um, but they were talking a few months ago about, oh, look at Cuba, look at how great Cuba is. Their response to COVID has been wonderful. Everyone's been tested. They have very you know, low infection rates, like no one's getting infected. And it's just so great. It's like, are you kidding me right now? Like you're actually, like, you're talking about how great communism is. Like one of them even sarcastically said in like the, the comment section, oh yeah, but communism is so bad, right? Like they're doing such a great job with their healthcare, but yet communism is so bad. It's like the boogeyman. Ooh. And it's like, the question I would ask a person like that is why are you still here? Yeah, in America, I know, right? Like, what? That's that's the question I have too. Why don't you go to Russia? Why don't you go to China? Go to Cuba. Go to Venezuela. You know, I mean, Bernie Sanders and all these Hollywood what? people were like, "Oh, Venezuela's great. It's going to work out so great." You know, democratic socialism, whatever. And now yeah. look at, I mean, so come on. To, I just try to remain calm, and it's like, um, it's it is okay. So it is like this. Is like so. The issue is education is huge. And um, I think you have to, so I'll go back to this thing I was saying, which is that I believe the educational system is social promotion for people who are politically like-minded or so, you know, like they're like go along, get along people, that's who's promoted. And um, not people who get things done because they're not polite. They're not polite enough. The people who, who buck the system and are not polite enough get eliminated because they they're just too rough on everybody's feelings because it's like well you made everybody feel bad because you were over well, they won't toe the line right they won't toe the narrative and you can't question the narrative right like you can't question authority well, that's, that's how i see it that's an interesting function and it's like the um it's like the 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 free speech question comes to play right and it's like Wow, it's so basic. It's like, wow, we're having a discussion about free speech. That's quite fascinating. And then it is authoritarianism. I've been having this conversation. You might find this amusing, which is like, um, the conversation goes like this, because I have my neighbor across the street, actually he sat next to me in med school, school for two years, about 1500 miles from here. And we had no, yeah, he just randomly moved across the street. I'm like, you must be kidding me, right? And so I sat next to him for two years. And it, he, he never agreed with me and I never agreed with him. We had uh, lively conversations about our disagreeable selves for years. And it's like, the question, I actually had sent him a text today, which is about this medical authoritarianism. So look, if we're having a scientific discussion, you and me, and we disagree with one another, at some point it stops being a scientific discussion because we agreed not to uh, agree and we're arguing with each other, but we're not changing our minds. And now I say, it sounds like this has become political, right? Because our biases are gonna play and you're still muted. I know, I'm still muted. I have four dogs, so I apologize. Sometimes they see someone across the street and they lose their minds. Rabbit, <laughs> or no, you would say squirrel. Yeah, like, oh my God. Um, yeah, hey guys, cut it out. Um, yeah, no, it it's, it's all like, it's all political. I think that's where we've, in my opinion, that's where we've gotten as a society is everything has to have an agenda, everything. Civil discourse is out the window, facts don't matter. It it just, that's, that's what it feels like to me. And that's what I have encountered 
um, on a regular basis. Now I do meet people. I like, I mean, I call them and many people call them the movable middle or the persuadable middle where they really authentically do care about facts. I think that's becoming less and less prevalent. Um, I recently friended someone who I just thought by her lifestyle and by some of the things that she said was a Marxist, you know, um, a lot of people are Marxist. They don't even know it just because the culture just has shifted so much. Like they don't, yeah, they don't even know what Marxism is. But um, I was talking to her and she's like, yeah, I'm going to vote for the libertarian candidate. I was like, really? She's like, yeah. And my gay friends, they're all going to vote for the libertarian candidate for president this year. I'm like, why? They're like, well, because we know Joe Biden's a creep and we normally would, you know, vote democratic, but he's had all these assault charges leveraged against him. He said all these racist things. So we just feel like the libertarian candidates, you know, the best bet. And that shocked the crowd yep. out of me. I was like, what? You're going to vote for Joe Jorgensen? What? Um, and they had like really good reasons why. Now they still kind of buy into like, or she in particular buys into like cultural appropriation and a few other things. But like when I, you know, I sat down and had a meal with her and I was telling her a little bit more about what I do for a living. And she's like, that's fantastic. And I'm like, really? Because I was honest with her about my, my views. And she's like, yeah, it makes total sense. And I kind of broke down in a very simplistic terms, like free market economics and difference between, you know, capitalism. I never use that term anyway, because Marx is the one that defined it. So I don't like to use Marxist terms to define my beliefs because it's so skewed. But I, I explained the free market in very simplistic terms. I explained what Marxism was in very simplistic terms. She's like, you're absolutely right. The free market is king. You know, that's the way to go. Um, and so with people like her who are kind of a blank slate, in a sense, like where she still is able to think for herself and she's not bought in one way or the other. If you explain things in terms that they understand, and this is a key thing to organizing, really, oh, yeah. is you go after the people in the movable middle and you really focus on terminology that they'll understand. And that, that's been a huge problem in the liberty movement too. And in people like you and I who have a lot of knowledge and think in a specific way, um, not, that you, not that you have this problem or anything, but people like you and me um, we, we talk it, we talk about these things in our language. We don't really think about the person across from us and use language that makes sense that's for them, you know, and that's, that's, that's a key thing to organizing. Um, and, and that really, like, I, I realized that pretty quickly, especially being a part of clergy in my faith is, you know, Paul says to the baker, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but let's do that to the baker. I'm a baker to the welder. I'm a welder. You know, I'm just making I'm making up job titles, but essentially he said that, like you, you have to speak their language. Right. You have to right. be able to relate with them. And that's something that the Marxist movement has done great at. They've been able to message to people that never in a million years, if you said, oh, this is Marxism, you know, they would never agree with it. But anyway, I'm kind of going on uh, down a rabbit hole, but um, I, I do, I do think that there is still kind of an opportunity to kind of persuade people over to our side, people that are in the persuadable middle, movable middle. Um, but we have to be really, really good at getting our language right, not to trick them, but just to right. give them mental models that they can relate right. to, that's so they right. can understand. Now, right? as, a, as a physician, I'm running to all kinds of people and it's like, that's one of the first things I do, what do you do? And then I try to I make analogs to, uh, or you know, to uh, metaphors that relate to their professional interest and their construction of how they look at the world. Cause it's like, here's what's going on with the body. Cause nobody has studies physiology. That's not happening. Okay. And it's yeah. like, okay, you don't want, and I could, I could talk to you and it would just snow you. You wouldn't want to be the party to the conversation. 
and it wouldn't be meaningful um, interaction. So it's like a, the trick is to make it so that you understand what I'm trying to tell you, and we don't have to agree. But it's like in the end, I want to make sure you understand where I'm coming from with regard to what how this all fits together. Yeah. So it is. It's to create uh, meaning within their life that makes sense to them, so that they can understand what it is and why why it is that you are advocating for the position you're advocating for. Absolutely. I mean, even people that I know that are Marxists and they'll say that they're Marxists or some kind of equivalent, right? But I still see them sometimes as an opportunity if they don't understand what they're espousing because they don't understand it well enough to where if I come in with language that they could understand, they, you know, they would still be so bought into that false understanding that they just wouldn't move. Um, so like for someone who really cares about equality, let's talk about equality then. Let's talk about healthcare and how you don't have equal access to healthcare because of the government. And look at what all these one percenters are doing to prevent you from having healthcare. And then I define what a one percenter is as a politician or, or whatever. Bernie Sanders, definitely a one percenter, right? Um, and I'm able to explain healthcare from that perspective because they're thinking one percenter, the elite. Okay, let's define that. Let's define it as the government. Let's look at what they're using their power for to prevent people. And, and it just, you just go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, it's like that. It's interesting because it's like, um, I, I look at it like this. It's like, there's a, there's a book that I have yet to read um, called Simulacra and Simulation. Okay, it's like simulacra is like to create a, um, it's like the system functions in a manner that is not like what it claims to function as it. That's my understanding of it, which is like, so the, the say the, I was studying this, like, so I look out the window and I talk to everybody looks around and uh, they see just misery out here is look out the window, you see misery and it's like, what's going on here? And I used to believe nobody has any money, right? And it's like, why is that? And it's like, the, 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 the basic preconception is that the elite are sucking up all the money to control, get the money because they want the money. And I'm like, you know what? I think that's not correct. They don't even need the money. They don't want the money. They don't need the money. And um, all they want to do is make sure you have none so that when they sprinkle it out there, you'll go running around after it. Like, uh, you know, you see the mule with the uh, carrot dangling in front of it. Yeah. Like, that's, that's it. It's like the purpose is to cause you to be sensitive to when they sprinkle it on the in front of you. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, money always helps, but I agree with you that ultimately it's power. And uh, it kind of reminds me, do you ever watch uh, game, uh, not Game of Thrones, although that's a very good political one too. Um, House of Cards. I, I never did watch that one. Casey. Um, I'm not some new watcher. I'm just like this. I'm like. Oh, it's really good. Especially like the first two or three seasons. It's, you know, I mean, Kevin Spacey, He's awful, but he's a very good actor in, in this series. Anyway, his character, Frank Underwood, um, he's a politician. He's a democratic politician. He's the, he's a corrupt AF, like, like terrible, evil, corrupt politician. And one of the things that he's, he's constantly breaking the fourth wall and he's like explaining politics to us. Wait, what's the fourth wall? The fourth wall? It's like when you look into the camera and you're talking to the audience. Okay, right? I got you. I've never heard of that. Okay, I'm good. Oh, I'm never heard of it? Oh, yeah. uh, like a reference to um, stagecraft. Yeah, yeah, it is a reference to stagecraft. It's when, um, you know, most movies, 
they never acknowledge the audience, but he will look directly at you and like start talking to you. And one of the things that he says, I think this is in the very first episode of the entire show is, um, you know, people are fools for money. Like I can get anyone to do anything for money and they're absolute fools. That's all I need to know about them. Money, you can lose, you can get, but power, you cannot just like lose power and then just get more. Like power just doesn't hang off, you know, don't, Mm -hmm. doesn't hang off of trees. Um, And it kind of reminds me of of that quote. Um, He has a lot of like good quotes about power and and politics and different things. They're just brilliant. Highly recommend for you to at least watch the first episode of the first season. If you're not hooked, uh-huh. but it's um anyway sorry another well, it's quite interesting because it's like the um the issue is this is i was amazed at how cheap people are throw mm-hmm. a little bit of money it's like what are you kidding me you're doing that for that's just crazyville you know what i mean like people yeah. are nuts man it's like wow like that's your price that's how much your character is worth oh a hundred percent a hundred i mean people do it money. not even for money like I, I had, um, when I was working for uh, Americans for Prosperity, AFP, there was this one guy and I, and I did report him um, just to make his door knocking numbers look better. He would like cheat on the numbers and say, oh, this person was here when they weren't, um, would, I mean, just would basically just cheat on the numbers just to make his numbers look good. Not even because he needed it to do his job. But just so that he would just look better than the other field directors, he was willing to compromise data for entire organization in order just to look better. And it's like, really, that's that's what does it for you. Like, that's how much it takes. That's how little it takes for you to compromise um, your virtue. It's it's baffling to me. Absolutely, it, oh, all the and, humanity. Right. All the humanity. <laughs> sure. It is. It's just. It's a fascinating thing. It's like you know, you um, you study the ancient texts, and you're like this. You know that nothing has changed. Oh no. <laughs> it's like this. It's like the the like the surface is looks different. It's like different foam on top, different waves. But at the surface, underneath is the same motivational structures of humanity hasn't changed it's in written history. That's just like. A, yeah. And it's like all those motivations, nothing different. And it's just so, so it's like this recombination of these uh, subsurface effects and control to control the surface is all that's happening here, which is utterly fascinating to me. I'm like, so it is, so the trick is to create human systems for human interaction and relate to each other in a more positive fashion, right? Yeah. I also, I also think too, you know, that's one of the reasons why the free market works so well is because it works with human nature, not against human nature, right? If you look at the free market, it's all about incentives, it's all about people pursuing their own self-interest, right? It doesn't work against human nature because we know human nature is not perfect. And that's why, that's why Marxism doesn't work. It's not, oh, we just hate Marxism for the sake of Marxism. No, it just (laughs) doesn't work doesn't work at all. It goes against human nature. It will never work no matter how many times it's tried, no matter how many forms it takes or what you call it. It's just, it's not going to work. And I think that's, that's the, one of the key things that I've taken away from my study of, of economics and politics is that you need systems, regardless of industry that works with human nature. That's right. Positively aligned, um, intentionality of the players all the players have this similar interests that makes the whole system positively charged and yeah. it's like so we have to point back at cuba again i read a book by a guy named sal 
Salvande Gonzalez, I believe is his name. And he's writing about the Cuban Revolution. And he said, his, his basic thesis of this book was fascinating. He's a Cuban. He's like, the Cuban Revolution is a mock-up of the new world order to come by the elite um, oligarch types. They want to generate a feudal system that um, enslaves the masses and they get to go jet set around and save the world by making everybody else slaves or serfs or something like that. I'm like, yeah. there you go. So it's like that. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. What's, you know, we're at this point, which is like, um, I had, a, I had a conversation with a friend of mine and I told him, I thought he was possessed, ideologically possessed, okay? Yeah. And it's like, and it was interesting because the next day the guy talked to me on the phone and he was like this, he did this psychological thing that was quite utterly fascinating and, and it put me on my heels because I didn't expect it to happen. But it's like this, he separated himself. He goes, I was going to tell you what I was thinking. So he takes himself out of the equation and what he was thinking, he presents to me. And it was that the possessing spirit spoke to me straight and it's like, it was awful. It was awful. And I'm like, oh yeah. And it's like it inspired in me like thoughts I don't want to have. And I'm like, okay, I hope I don't see him anytime soon at all, ever. In fact, wow. I would be happy. But it's like, you know, it's like, um, um, what's the significance of it? It's like this um, nihilism and, um, hmm. right? And it's, it's, it's like, um, there's, a, there's a, a guy named, you might be aware of him, um, E. Michael Jones. Okay, so E. Michael Jones is a Catholic who's a copious writer, professor of English, literature in English. And he got fired from St. Mary's College in Indiana for being anti. Uh, so St. Mary's is a Catholic university or yeah. college. He got fired for being after one year. He got fired for being at least this is his opinion. Um, fired for being anti-abortion in a Catholic school in 1980. And so then he started creating a magazine called Culture Wars Magazine. Uh -huh. And he and he's written. He wrote like I read 4,000 pages that he wrote in last year. And I, and I have a thousand page book in my book box, right? And it's in a box right now, but it's a thousand page book. I mean, he writes as fast as I can read and then some. It's fascinating. Yeah. And so it's like, but he writes culture wars. And it's like, so I, I had a couple chats with him online. And I'm like, Mike, he, Michael, you know, um, how'd you get here? Because we're in the same place. And I, I got here by trying to figure out what happened to America. He goes, I got here by trying to figure out what happened to the Catholic Church. And I'm like, same answer. It's the same answer. Cultural, yeah. uh, culture wars, he would call it culture wars. Um, there's a guy named Yuri Bezmanov. You probably heard of him. Yuri Bezmanov, he's a um, KGB agent that defected in 1970 to Canada because he couldn't stand the Russian communists because he was one of them. He was a KGB yeah. agent in India and he oh. couldn't stand their ethics. And he's like, he talks about um, demoralization and he was lecturing in the early 1980s. And there's, there, you can find his YouTubes very readily. And it's like demoralization and then the, the purpose is to create a revolution and a new um, governmental system, you know, post-revolutionary uh, normal, new normal, right? Yeah, oh yeah, of course. And so it's like this, so he described the system and I'm like, oh, it's all very fascinating. But what's the significance of it? It's like, well, here we are, it's like culture wars. It's like, the trick to me is to, to create uh, robust people who are able to use their own brains and can understand whether or not their interests are being served by whatever is happening around them. One of the things that Bezmanov said was this, he goes, if you properly demoralized person cannot tell their own self-interest, okay? Yeah. 
because it's like this. He goes, you can bring them color or black and white glossy pictures and they will not recognize the evidence as evidence. They will have a reason to dismiss it. And that E. Michael Jones would talk about it like this. He calls it libido dominante, which is like your passions govern you. Yeah. Okay. So it's like, um, there, there, there's a guy named um, David, what's his name? Shoot, Livingstone. And he's a, he's a um, black Muslim in Canada. Montreal is where he lives. And he write, he's a, he's a wild man. And like he, he quit college and he's like, I'll just educate myself. And now he writes books and he writes pretty interesting books. And it's like, but they're, they're, they're wild. And, and Livingstone basically taught me this. He goes, here's the Babylonian control system, okay? So there's magi and there's sorcerers. And they're both, they all use magic to control, to control the events inside the society. So the magi are good magic users who do good things for good people and prevent bad things from happening to good people. They're the wise men of the East in the nativity story, right? right. They're the bright and frankincense, myrrh and gold. Yeah. Those are the good guys. Okay, so they're the good guys. And, but there's their shadow side in, in, in Babylon is the sorcerers. And the sorcerer's job, here's how, here's how uh, Livingstone describes it. And it may be Livingstone, but it's so close that I can't distinguish between the two. With all apologies, sir. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it goes like this. The sorcerer's job is to summon demons and to control them through their superior knowledge of evil. Which mm-hmm. is like, well, what does that mean? Right? It's like, so it's like, that's like ancient speak for something that's really happening in a, like a socio-psychological sense, right? Or psychosocial mm-hmm. function. So here's my interpretation is that summoning demons is to inflame the passions of the crowd. So they're a mob, mm-hmm. right? And then to control it through your superior knowledge of evil is to make sure you don't get burned because you're setting a big fire in your society. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed, they're supposed to go do something that's useful to you if you're the sorcerer, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's just how organizing works. I mean, it's, hmm. I mean, going back to the, you know, demoralization that you talked about, I mean, I, I so I'm Jewish and the, you know, enemy number one, non-spiritual, but in some cases, spiritual enemy of Jews has been the government. Like you look at governments all throughout history the horrible things they would do to Jews. Um, so why, you know, why that's relevant is there's a lot of Jewish organizations here in America. I was a part of one. Um, I was trained by one, uh, Progressive, and they would advocate for things that's like, why would you, why would you do that? Well, because we're Jews and we care about equality and justice. Okay, but that's not that. Like you're fall, you're falling for a freaking trap, but you're so brainwashed or demoralized that you don't even see it when it's in front of your face. Um, I recently posted on social media about how I will never vote for Joe Biden and Kamal Harris, and you know here's why, you know for CJR reasons and racism reasons, and and you know Biden's got so many sexual assault allegations leveraged against him, and I had one of my friends from this Jewish progressive Jewish organization say, you know, I'm so disappointed in you as white Jews, we have a responsibility with the power that we have of being white to like advocate for the least among us. And I'm like, well, then why in the world would you support Biden? Like he's clearly racist. He's clearly anti-woman. 
He, you know, his, the policy that he advocates for would not help minorities. In fact, he's one of the key architects of our current CJR system, which promotes police brutality. So why, and, and, you know, and Kamal Harris has thrown so many black people, innocent black people into prison. Like she built her career on it. So why the hell, pardon my French, but why the hell would you ever vote for him? You know, it's like, they're so brainwashed. They can't see what's right in their face. They're so, and I really believe that's part of the reason why people are so partisan. Like they're so riled up by the media and by their parties against each other. They can't even think logically. I mean, I'm a pretty, I've, I consider myself pretty open-minded. And even for me, having grown up the way that I did, it was a really uncomfortable process to come to the realizations that I had, which are completely independent of the different parties. And it took me actually living under communism for an entire year to get to the point where I cared more about the values and the issues than I cared about the talking points and the inflammatory like mind control. This, this will be the Levito Dalmanandi thing, okay? Yeah, yeah. Like the educational process is designed to generate attachment of emotional value to the symbols that can then be put in front of you by the media presentation by the sorcerer to stimulate you to have some emotional function. So you see it in um, 1984, the, the five minute hate, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's like this. So it's like to generate, we don't want them thinking rationally. We right. want them to be controllable, malleable people is what mm -hmm. they're after. And it's like, at least, you know, in the aggregate sense, it's like to control the population because it's like, that's how you stay in charge. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, I'm, like, I'm not interested in anybody staying in charge. So that makes me automatically a bad sheep, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm like Western civilization. I'm like, you know, I'm like Western civilization. There's a um, V.I. Lenin. So that's Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. He, you know, he's Lenin of the communist revolution in Russia. Um, for mm -hmm. people, Some of the people, they don't talk about it in ministry class anymore, I don't think. Yeah. Bolshevik, Bolshevik revolution. Yeah, they also don't want to talk about how he spent most of his time in France and he was educated on Marxism in France. They don't ever want to make that connection. Same thing with Pol Pot. Same thing with a lot of these, um, you know, terrorists or these, you know, tyrants. They were all, I'm sorry, like I could just. Yeah, well, no, anyway. I was going to say, interesting. So Lenin said this thing that was useful in my mind, which is the, the best way to control the opposition is to lead the opposition. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you have, you have a bunch of people who are true believers, right? They're true believers, emotionally driven, and they're, you know, motivated. But you make sure you have a cynical mercenary in charge that is leading them, and you promote that one with money. And it doesn't matter if they believe. That way you get the crowd to do what you want them to do. That's, um, that's Lenin leading the um, opposition so that they always will fail or win. And it's like, so I talked to a nice young German fellow. This was interesting. So he was a programmer that I hired maybe eight years ago to do some telemedicine stuff with. And um, I said, you know, this, this time from, he lives in California now. And he's, I said, you know, this, this looks like uh, um, about 1920s Germany, like Weimar Germany. So the, in Weimar Germany, there's the communists and there's the Nazis and they're fighting in the streets. And here's the trick. Doesn't matter who wins because yeah. in the end, both sides are controlled by the moneyed interest. Mm -hmm. And so it's like whoever wins, the seat falls in the hands of the money. And it doesn't matter who wins. Yeah. Okay. Sounds familiar. 
Well, it's like this. It's like, well, so, so, so that's the, the, the game and it has been the game probably for thousands of years. Right? And I call this the ownership. And I study Hebrew oddly in the last one year, about one year now. And I'm doing what happened to America. And I'm like studying Hebrew. I'm like, it can't come down to Hebrew. I'm like, you must be kidding me. Right? In a million years, I'm reading Aramaic. I'm like, right? Because Aramaic is a precursor to Hebrew, right? But the, it's the same letters. And I'm like, so I'm like, just, I became interested, which is like, okay, the question became this. So, okay, look, so there's two images of the bush in the Bible that I'm aware of. And there's the, there's that bush that Abraham's ram got caught in that allowed him to distinguish the good God, right? And then there's the burning bush, which is actually a cell phone that talks to God directly. And I'm like, you know, this bush thing, this bush is a literary symbol of high import because it's like, it's the direct intervention of God in the affairs of man. It's like, maybe I should spend a little bit of time thinking about this. So I said, how do you spell it in uh, Hebrew? Which really meant Aramaic, right? Right, right. It's spelled Chin Yod Tov, okay? And I'm like, how do you say that? Shit. I'm like, you must be kidding me. I'm laughing, right? Oh, that's and so wait, funny. wait, so then I'm reading this Hebrew translator. I'm using a Hebrew translator. And then I'm like this. Translate it back into English from the Hebrew, right? And it means bush, thicket. And it also means discourse. And that just about knocked me off my chair, Okay. Yeah. And so I'm like this, so I'm studying what it, what's going on here. And it said it in the first word of the Bible. The first word of the Bible is brashit, right? Okay, yeah. Okay, so vara is to make shit discourse, okay? So it's like this. What is going on is you're separate from the part of reality that you called not you, and you're interacting with it in a generative fashion, which is the discourse. And so you're generating your reality. I'm like, that says everything right there. How about that? And I'm like, wow. you know, it's, it made me understand. Like I say, it's, it's ridiculous. But I was, I was studying it and it was like, it made me understand how I understand how the Babylonians were organizing their society. And it's like, what's going on with people psychologically and then sociologically. So the issue is to line up their intentionalities so that we're all positively intentioned. I think that's the most important element of all of it. Is like when we when we work together, we align our interests truly. Our intentionalities are properly aligned, and no one's playing crooked. Because if yeah. you do that, there's going to be some bad things happening, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's like this: be just straight up, square with each other, and then um, positively intentioned, and then we can generate. If we're speaking true, we have to speak true to one another, and then we can we can generate a positive field that will protect and repel things that are no good and attract things that are positive right yeah that's all and it's like that's easy enough how about that the hardest part though it's like this it's like this um you know it's like self-deception right because mm. there's like so so the 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 person my, my friend or former friend who was attached to this possessing entity which i call the spirit of ownership okay mm. It's almost impossible to distinguish that from yourself and your own thinking. It's like it's as smart as you are and can access all the faculties that you have access to and does not want to be expelled. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it will deceive you and lie to you and tell you stories about yourself that are negative. And I kind of look at this as a, I've been studying psychology for a year, pretty psych, psychotherapy for a year, I guess. I don't know. The. Um, the issue is this, I call neurosis is this premise is, is 
having negative thoughts and doing things to negate the negative thoughts. Does that make sense? So it's like to ward off the negative thing, you're doing things. It's like I'm OCD because I, I wash my hands to prevent the bad thing from happening, right? Oh, I'm, no. Oh, I'm no. That way. I yeah. got you. Sorry. I'm actually, I am very, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. I, I, really, I know I have a problem. I know, I know I'm OCD and not just about hand washing. But anyway, please. please no, please, it goes like this. So it's like this. This is this is fascinating. So I was I was um, I drive down the road. I live in a um, you know, I live in a rural town in Arizona, and I live down a country road. And people drive a little bit too fast, and there's too many bunnies. And that, so you always get some dumb bunnies going to get turned into pulverized, smashed. You know what I mean? It's rough, and it's like this. So I was like, I'm living on this road, driving home on a nice sunny day. It's always sunny here, mostly. Very rarely got yeah. overcast, and it's like um, smashed bunnies, and it's like. I'm like getting upset by this for too long. Like this 20 minutes, I'm like still upset. I'm like, wow, this is getting out of hand. What am I going to do? So every time I see the smash bunny, say the Lord's prayer. Okay. And it's like this, because I'm like, God, what am I going to do? How, how am I going to not be so upset? Because this is get, this is not, it's like going down this neurotic pathway, right? Yeah. But Bambi did, you know, it's not bad. It's Thumper. He didn't, he, he didn't do anything wrong, man. He's an innocent victim of, of automotive transportation. And yeah. you know what I mean? And so there's always going to be another one because they generate, they keep on generating more bunnies very rapidly and there's more cars and there's just, just never going to stop. So I'm like, I start saying the Lord's prayer and it made my mind stop doing it. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. So this is my cure for OCD. All these, because it's like, I, I, I study people with neurosis and I started prescribing it maybe a dozen years ago. Yeah. It goes like this is like, so the, the typical neurotic person would be something like this. He's like, okay, so you know when you lay awake and you can't go to sleep and you just can't stop thinking, mm -hmm. okay? That you're not really thinking. You just think you're thinking. And it's okay. like, wait, I heard myself say that to a patient. I'm like, this is the most ridiculous nonsense I've ever heard, <laughs> right? And I'm like, but it's, it's very informative because it goes like this. It's like, you're being possessed by your thoughts. When you, mm -hmm. when look, it's because your will is dependent on your thoughts as opposed to your thoughts are dependent on your will so what this does is when you say the lord's prayer because it's just rote memorization you're just doing this thing you're making your mind you ever you ever see him train a horse in a round pen uh no okay so a round pen is a giant round pen that's why they call it a round pen right, okay, right. the cowboy invites the horse in the most important thing the cowboy has to do is to establish the intention to dominate the horse's behavior with his will because cowboy walks around the center of the circle in a tiny little circle and has a long rope that goes to the bridle of the horse to the nose of the horse and he carries around a big whip and the horse trots around the edge he's doing this giant circle and then when the cowboy wants him to turn around he steps to the side and the horse is like wow he's in front of me oh, and he turns around that guy's so fast because i'm so yeah. the horse is doing these big circles and the cowboy will turn him around and he just does that until he's satisfied with training the horse then he lets him go now, if the cowboy doesn't establish the intention to uh, dominate the thinking of the horse or, or the behavior of the horse with his will, the horse is going to kick him in the head, jump over the fence, and chase America's. Hanging out with cowboys not as fun, right? right, right. <laughs> so, um, I tell the patient, I'm like, this is like when you think you're thinking and you're not sleeping and you think you're thinking, that's you get kicked in the head by your mind because you're being possessed by your thoughts, right? Right. Yeah. And so it's yeah, like this. So you say the Lord's Prayer, and what that does is that makes the mind go through rote memorization because it's like it's fixed pathway and it's under willful control because you do it until it's right and then you let it go 
And when it acts up again, you do it again, right? And it's yeah. like, this is, this causes this to get under control. Correct. So you practice this. If you're doing the OCD thing, right? You're like, yeah, that's not me that said that. Then you say the Lord's Prayer to make you calm down, wind it down, see if it works. And it's yeah. like this. I tell everybody the same thing. I'm like, look, look, Mary had a little and it might work. Okay, I don't know. It hasn't been tested. And it's not ethical for me to test it because I have one that works. Yeah. So I'm like, I won't test it. And it's right. like, okay. And, I, and it's like, um, I have to, I got an atheist to do it. And she would, she taught me a lot by, by doing it. Cause she's like, I don't believe that. I said, it doesn't matter what you believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just make your mind go through these paces and it will work. I guarantee it. Yeah. It's a redirection. No, that's what she said. Not it's not redirection. It's it not. not, it is not redirection. It is, okay. it is, it is training your mind to do as you will. Okay. Because your mind is to be a tool for you. So the Hindus talk about the mind like it's a horse. That's what she said. And I'm like, well, no, 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 no. That's where the intentionality comes in. And it made me understand that part of it. Because if you think it's redirection, it's just throw a shiny thing and go, oh, a squirrel, right? That's not right. Because the issue is, no, it's, it's make your mind behave appropriately per your will, and then you let them go. And it gets your mind used to be, it's the same as the horse. You're training the horse. The Hindus talk about the mind like it's a horse for 5,000 years, okay? And they yeah. said, um, they said, if you follow your mind, you're going to get tired and dirty. Mm -hmm. Which is, yeah. that's what neurosis is. That's neurotic behavior. Because it's like, okay, you're just chasing around. And it's like, you know, you're washing your hands and the skin is falling off because it hurts so too dried out. It's like, off. Yeah. So it's like that. I tell everybody the same thing. I said, you probably practice for 90 days it will take to get your mind used to being under relaxing and, and doing as your will tells it to do as opposed to allowing it to run around and kick you. I'll have to try that. I know um, like what has worked for me quite often has been um, especially like when I'm laying down at night trying to sleep is uh, meditation to where I will just like focus on my nose or just uh, focus on God, you know, like the name of God. And I'll just like repeat it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then it's like, I'll like calm down. I'll like level out. Um, that's really worked for me. I'll, I'll try the Lord's prayer though. That, that could be interesting. It's just a thought. And it's like, well, what does that mean? I don't, I don't claim it to be the end all of all outcomes. Oh, sure. It's just a prescription. It's like, okay, sure, but it's sure. a thought. And it's like, well, ultimately it comes down to this. We, to be most effective, we have to have our minds, our faculties in order. And, and not behaving by um, 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 reflex, right? Like we get stimulated and we, our emotionality takes over and then we're not using the, the higher faculties to achieve our, our ends. Right. But it's like that. So it's like, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to um, figure out this. The, um, it is a, this social space that you're working in is very similar to the social space I'm intent upon working, but I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm working, I'm moving up from this professionalism, professional opportunity, like business, mm -hmm. and then turn it into uh, this working inside this social sphere where you're working right now. It's like, it's very complex and it's, and it's difficult because everybody, there's so many um, in, in this space that you're working is like, you know, everybody needs jobs and everybody's worried about healthcare and they got their family and you know, it's all, it's very tough, man. It's like, it's so many competing elements. It's kind of like, it seems like you have to, um, I think the big thing is, it, I, 
the, the, con, the construct I see is it's relational value between people, right? Yeah, it, it really is all about relationships, any kind of organizing. And I tell people, if you want to understand organizing, read the Bible, especially the New Testament, because that's all you're being taught is organized. I mean, you're being taught more than that. Like you're, you're being taught, it's all a messianic Jew. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know if you know what messianic Judaism is. Basically, we're the ones that do believe that the prophecy has been fulfilled, that Yeshua was the Messiah. So I, I do read the New Testament. And um, maybe, sorry, my dog is being needy. Um, so, you know, I mean, Paul was a brilliant organizer. Jesus was, a, you know, God is a brilliant organizer. Um, and, and really, it's, it's so necessary because you're, I mean, they were like the least popular people on the face of the planet. Like the Jews didn't want anything to do with them. Um, nobody really wanted anything to do with them at, at all. The Jews wouldn't believe it, even though they were Jews, you know, and obviously the prophecy was fulfilled. Anyway, it, it, it's very, very, very fascinating. Um, but there's also like, aside from the New Testament, there are lessons we can learn about organizing in the New Testament. There is a book called Rules for Radicals. If you haven't heard of it, um, it if you haven't read it, please read it. There's also a book called, um, in fact, I might have it. I do actually right up here. Um, it's called uh, Leadership and Dedication. I think it's backwards because I'm on video, but. No, it's um, not. It's not. It's Dedication no, and Leadership. Oh, Dedication and Leadership. I'm sorry. And it's by Douglas Hyde. Now, Douglas Hyde, um, he was a top communist leader. He was British. And he was recruited and he became one of their top leaders. And he ended up converting to Catholicism. Oh. And then he wrote this book so that the Catholics could understand the tactics of communists and why they were so successful despite their rhetoric and their values leading to poverty and death and destruction. Like, you know, how would you get people to buy into this? Um, and so it's a fascinating book. I highly recommend um, both of those books, if you're interested in entering into this, but also like Paul's tactics are, are very, very good. Jesus's tactics are very, very good. In fact, Saul Alinsky uh, calls Paul the greatest community organizer of all time. Um, so it's fascinating. You can find a lot of Alinsky, you know, videos, what little that there is left on, on YouTube. Um, and then there's, I mean, there's a lot of uh, more modern community organizing books, but they're all pretty much variations of rules for radicals etc um it's very very good and uh there's also a book that you might find fascinating it's called leadership and self-deception oh yeah i got that one you have that one at the arbinger institute great stuff yeah. Um, great work yeah that that those books taught me so much but um yeah if i had to recommend anything for you as you're as you're learning more about the the organizing space and that industry i would highly recommend those books so here's a question. I'll ask you this kind of in closing, okay? This is like, uh, what project are you working on at the moment that is of, of interest to the people that are listening to us here? Um, so I do work full-time for AF, uh, America's Future Foundation. And um, I'm not representing America's Future, just FYI as a disclaimer. I'm representing myself, Rachel Toombs. Um, but we are in my professional capacity. I am working on a national membership through um, America's the America Future Foundation. Um, it's for millennials and Gen Zers 
We don't have anything like it in the liberty movement space right now, but it's meant to support and encourage and empower those who believe in liberty to live a liberty lifestyle and to be effective wherever they are, um, especially at the local level, whether that's transforming any of the five key institutions that that we have that we recognize, which is government, business, community, media, and education. Um, so you know, that that's all very important. One of the things that we're really passionate about is really plugging that gap in the liberty movement where we're actually shifting culture. I don't know if you've heard of the Overton window. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's what we want to do because there's really no organizations, especially organizations that are focused on millennial and Gen Z in the liberty movement that are purely focused on shifting culture. Now you look, we I've done a ton of oppo research, tons and tons of oppo research. And there's like, there's a mil, like mil, I don't say millions, but it seems like there's millions of organizations like this in the Marxist movement. Um, we've we've fallen behind, so we really want to encourage people through this membership um, to get active based on their passion on the local level, not even politically, but just shift the culture. Excuse me, no matter what institution interests you. Um, so yeah, we're, how would we contact you and your organization then? Yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about my organization, uh, where I work, and um, or just me to ask more questions, you can uh, email me at Rachel, spelled R-H-A-C-H-E-L, at americasfuture.org, um, or R-H-E-N-S-O-N-T-O-O-M-B-S at gmail.com. Wonderful. Thank you for coming out and enjoy a, a little lively little conversation with me. Yeah, ditto. I had a had a blast. Thank you for having me. Very good. We'll, we'll catch up to each other later, I hope. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Bradley. I really appreciate being here and, and being able to talk with you. Well, thank you very much too, Rachel. You take care now. Thanks. You too. <laughs> See you next time. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Best Medicine Podcast with Bradley H. Werrell, D.O. Don't forget to hit like and subscribe below, either over there or over there. Also, if you're interested in a medical consultation with myself, there's also information below.